Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, committed to pioneering the next generation of innovative lung cancer treatments. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about pulmonary interventions with Dr. Jonathan Pachalski. Dr. Pachalski is an associate professor of internal medicine in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery. So Jonathan, maybe we can start off by talking about what exactly does an interventional pulmonologist do, especially with regards to cancer? Sure. So interventional pulmonary is a sub subspecialty uh, in internal medicine and pulmonology. Uh, we go through an additional year plus of training that focuses a lot on procedures, uh, advanced both diagnostic and therapeutic uh, procedures. And in our line of work, we, um, we work with a lot of patients who have various types of cancer to provide uh, assistance with both diagnoses and treating symptoms oftentimes. So tell me more about that. So presumably, um, because you're in the pulmonary field, these are patients with lung cancer or cancers that may have gone to the lung from other spots in the body. What exactly does that look like in terms of diagnosis? I mean, many people, when they think about diagnosis of something, they think about imaging um, with CT scans or chest x-rays or what have you, um, and then biopsies. Tell me how an interventional pulmonologist kind of comes into that mix and, and what the interplay is between you and the rest of that multidisciplinary team. Sure. Uh, it is definitely a multidisciplinary team. We become involved uh, through various routes. Uh, we often get referred either through a patient's primary care physician or perhaps another pulmonologist who doesn't do the procedures that we do. Uh, similarly, we become involved with referrals from our own colleagues in thoracic surgery, medical and radiation oncology. And so it generally tends to, uh, patients tend to come to us after they've had the imaging that you described, whether that's a chest x-ray or usually a CT scan or CAT scan of the chest that shows something that's not completely normal. And then our job is to find out if that abnormal finding is or is not cancer and how far perhaps it has spread if that's the case and if it's from the lung or if it's from another area in the body. And how do you do that exactly? Oftentimes it's through bronchoscopy. So oftentimes it's actually going into the lungs. Sometimes it's going around the lungs in what's called the pleural space, where pleural fluid may build up in the form of effusions. Um, so something within the chest, and either that's through bronchoscopy, when we need to go inside the lung, or a pleural procedure like thoracentesis when we go around the lung. So with bronchoscopy, that's where you take a tube and you put it down somebody's throat into their windpipe 
and that you look down into their windpipe into their lungs. Correct. So it's very similar to people are probably more familiar with colonoscopies. So a similar concept, just a different area. And as you said, um, while patients asleep, usually with anesthesiology, we go down into the lungs, into the windpipe, and we can um, go to different parts of the lung uh, through the bronchoscope. And then say somebody has a, a cancer, is it often in in invading into that windpipe like that you can see it in the windpipe or do you have to if it's if it's not in that windpipe if it's in the parenchyma or the actual part of the lung that's not necessarily attached to the windpipe how do you get a sample because when you were talking about kind of helping to make that diagnosis figuring out is this cancer what kind of cancer where did it come from presumably you're going after tissue correct so how do you do that? So if you think of the lungs like a tree, we start at the biggest trunk of the tree, the trunk of the tree, and go to different branches. Sometimes these abnormalities are in those branches or in the airway itself. Sometimes they're more where the leaves of the tree would be or in the what we call lung parenchyma. And depending on that, uh, it depends on what technique we use. So yes, sometimes it, uh, a cancer or a tumor or a benign or non-cancerous uh, lesion can grow into an airway, in which case we often see that with the actual bronchoscope. But sometimes we have to use advanced uh, technology to go beyond that airway, go farther out into the quote-unquote tree per se uh, to find the areas that we need to make a diagnosis of. And so we can use advanced tools for that. Tell me about those advanced tools. What's out there? Because some people may understand the concept of bronchoscopy but may not know all of the newer advances that have come down the pipe. Sure. Uh, bronchoscopy has changed dramatically over the past decade and continues to change actually at a very rapid pace. Um, for, for the uh, tumor that we may be able to see within the airway, uh, there are different ways to biopsy that so that we can make sure we understand what's going on. But if the tumor is not something that we can see, uh, the different tools include uh, the use of an actual ultrasound machine that's embedded within the bronchoscope as well as uh, in the future what looks like it's going to be involving robots uh, and robotic bronchoscopy to assist with making uh, diagnoses. So, you know, John, we've, we've talked on this show a little bit about robotic surgery and how, um, at least in the operating room now, surgeons are able to use robots that kind of give them a little bit more dexterity in terms of getting into tight spaces. Um, and, and resecting things. How exactly does a robotic bronchoscope work? And do we have that now? Or how long in the future do you think that's going to be? Yeah, so when we try to find areas in the lung that we can't see, sometimes uh, going back to the tree analogy, it's like trying to find an acorn uh, in the far branches of a, of a big tree. Our, cor our current tools actually use 
different things like an ultrasound. Uh, we can put a very, very, very tiny ultrasound machine out into the branches of that tree or the branches of the lung to try to find that tumor or that acorn per se. And if the ultrasound can detect it, we know that that's where we need to do the biopsies. But sometimes it's not that straightforward. We can't just go down the branch and, and, and find that area. So we need to make different turns, different twists, and, and more or less navigate to the area. So currently, we have uh, bronchoscopy tools that are very similar to, to GPS systems. Mm. Literally, we can, we can correlate a patient's CAT scan, so the imaging we talked about earlier, with uh, the bronchoscope. And we can use these together during a procedure to, to find the area of question. And literally, it's like GPS. It'll tell us, go right then go left, go left again, and we end up uh, ultimately, hopefully, in the, the area of concern. Um, that technology still is, however, not perfect. Um, it, it has some shortcomings, and the hope for the future is that using robots may improve uh, our ability to make the diagnoses. Um, so the robots allow us as the lung doctors to, to use something that's very similar to a video game uh, control, in which case we can advance uh, the robot's arms, per se, to different areas of the lungs uh, in different parts of the airways to perform uh, the biopsies that we need to. Are they in existence? They're just coming into existence. Uh, one company was recently FDA approved, and another one is expected to be approved uh, by the FDA in the next month or so. And so I've had the opportunity to uh, um, work with uh, uh, fine-tuning uh, some of those instruments and um, to see both of those uh, robotic platforms, per se. And we hope that within the next 6 to 12 months, we'll have even more information about how, how good they are, uh, if they're as good as we think they're going to be, in which case we likely would have them here within the next uh, similarly 6 to 12 months. Well, that's really cool. So, but... Right now, if there's an acorn out on a far-reaching branch of a tree and you don't really have the ability with your bronchoscope to get all the way out there, even with ultrasound, what are the other options? I mean, does somebody just live with an acorn in a tree and not know what it is? Yeah. So sometimes they can. If it's just a very small uh, dot, per se, it may be something that we follow with another CAT scan in the future or another series of CAT scans to make sure that it's not growing. If it's something that's a bigger dot and something that we are worried about and we know that we need to find out for sure what it is, there are still different techniques available. So one of those with that same quote-unquote GPS system we talked about, with that system, um, it goes beyond the ultrasound, uh, again, the turn right, turn left, turn left approach, but it also allows us to uh, 
obtain biopsies from the outside of the uh, person's body into the lung. Mm -hmm. We call that a transthoracic biopsy. So during one procedure, we may be able to perform the whole bronchoscopic approach. And if we um, still don't know what's going on, we may be able, during the same procedure, using these advanced systems, uh, be able to perform biopsies uh, across, the, across the chest. So that's one way of doing it. In that way, uh, is the patient still in the CT scanner, like you're getting the images and then directing your needle while they're in CT uh, with a radiology doctor? Or is this something that happens in a bronchoscopy suite uh, with a pulmonary doctor? So what I was referring to is actually in the bronchoscopy suite with the pulmonary doctor. Uh, so using that correlation of the CAT scan and the bronchoscope, there's a, just an extension uh, per se of that technology that still allows us to use the CAT scan that the patients already had. Right. So it, they're not getting a new CAT scan while they're on the table. Not while they're on the table. Um, we do have them get one the same day so that we have the most up-to-date information. But while they're on the table, we can use that, uh, that CAT scan and this GPS-like system to actually do the biopsies then. Well, that's really cool. Uh, you had mentioned that there's another way to access these far-reaching lung nodules, but we need to take a short break for a medical minute first. So please stay tuned to learn more information about pulmonary interventions with my guest, Dr. Jonathan Puchelski. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, providing important treatment options for patients living with different types of lung, bladder, ovarian, breast, and blood cancers. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jonathan Pachelski. We're talking about interventional pulmonary medicine. And for those of you just joining us, this is really a field where specialized lung doctors can use fancy techniques to help the multidisciplinary team in both diagnosis and treatment of cancers presenting in the lung, whether they come from the lung or they come from other places. Now, John, before the break, we were talking about thinking about the analogy of, of the lung like a tree, which I, I love that analogy, because when you think about going down through the main airway, kind of like going up through the trunk of the tree, trying to get some of those far-reaching nodules that may be like acorns and branches of trees can be sometimes a little bit difficult. Now, you had mentioned that there's another technique, another 
card up your sleeve in terms of biopsying those. How do you do that exactly? Well, so we had previously discussed using ultrasound and GPS-like techniques. Um, we often will rely also on our colleagues in these circumstances to to help with those biopsies. So sometimes if it's not something that we can access very readily by going through the trunk of the tree, et cetera, and we have to do biopsies from the outside of the chest to the inside, um, we work very, very closely with our interventional radiologists who can do uh, CAT scans during their procedures uh, to help uh, biopsy uh, these nodules, per se. Or we may also need to use um, our, uh, our colleagues in thoracic surgery uh, to, to take out these nodules to figure out exactly what's going on. But we tend to start, when possible, with the bronchoscopy approach because there are so many different tools that we have available, not only to figure out what's going on, but also to potentially figure out if it is spread anywhere else within the chest. Yeah. And so, and one would think that you'd like to start with a, a scope test because it's least invasive, but sometimes these may be, you know, near vital structures, big blood vessels, other things that that uh, might be a little bit tricky for people to biopsy just with a needle from the outside, and you might need a surgeon who's actually there who can see these vessels and, and take this out. The other thing you had mentioned was that interventional pulmonary medicine plays a role not just in diagnosing these lesions, but also in treatment. Tell me more about that. So we do, there are some times when a, a person may have a cancer or something else that has grown into that trunk of the tree, like we talked about, something actually within the airways or within the branches. And if those branches are, are blocked off, per se, like a tube gets blocked off, the person may have trouble breathing, may feel short of breath, may feel that they can't uh, get through their normal activities during the day because they're just limited. They can't catch their breath. And that may be because of this uh, tumor or cancer that's growing into the airways. So part of our field does therapeutic bronchoscopy or provides therapy through the bronchoscope. How exactly does that work? I mean, one can imagine that, you know, if you take your bronchoscope and if this airway is kind of blocked with tumor, you can kind of try and navigate a little tiny window where the tumor might not be to get your scope down. And that might provide a little bit of relief during that procedure. But how do you maintain that when the patient goes home after the bronchoscope? Sure. So if that tube is blocked and we, we open it up, there are still things that we can actually do during the procedure to help keep it open. Um, we often refer to it as a fire and ice. So the fire part of that has to do with uh, using tools like lasers or something that we call APC, which is a way to generate heat or generate almost electricity with inside, uh, inside the airways that can more or less burn these, these cancers, burn these tumors away from the airway. And so not only can we open that up right away, but by applying the, the quote unquote fire to this area, uh, it, it 
tends not to grow back, at least for a considerable period of time. So one question I have right off the bat, I mean, I remember being in Girl Scouts and remembering how fires get started um, with heat and oxygen. This is a bad combination. Um, And you're telling me that you're putting the two of them together in the airway. So we do. Oxygen, of course, is essential for us to breathe. Um, But uh, we can limit the amount of oxygen uh, during these procedures. There there are criteria. There there are rules that we follow. So we don't give more than what we call 40 percent oxygen during a case, in which case we we minimize any risks uh, involved with the oxygen. But you're absolutely right. The oxygen plays an important part of the fire, but we're able to con- control that part uh, when we do the procedure. And so so people can have this, uh, this ablation with this heat uh, and not worry about their airway catching fire. Uh, absolutely. Okay. Right. <laughs> That's good. I just wanted to lay people's fears yes. in, case, uh, in case people were uh, listening to uh, the news about forest fires and things like that. Okay, so that's the fire part of it. Tell me about the ice part of it. So ice uh, is something we we call cryo uh, or cryotherapy, and we're doing the exact opposite. Instead of using our different tools to to burn these tumors and and get rid of them that way, we can use cold to freeze them. And because when you freeze a tumor and then let it f- thaw and freeze it again and let it thaw, freeze it again and let it thaw. It can't survive that, uh, that those episodes of extreme cold with normal temperature. And so we use this cryotherapy in these cases to provide a similar uh, type of relief for obstruction in the airways. So, you know, when I think about things freezing and I think about, you know, forming an ice ball, Does this actually, uh, you know, if you if you freeze something, can it obstruct the airway as you create an ice ball or how do you get around that? Yeah. So usually the airway is already obstructed. So we're we're taking part of that ice and chipping away at that ice and making it smaller and smaller and smaller each time um, we uh, were in doing the procedure. So literally it's like breaking down parts of a. You know, an iceberg per se. Uh, we chip away at it until it's gone. So we don't obstruct it more. We actually uh, shrink it by pulling off uh, pieces of the frozen part uh, one at a time. And so how how many procedures do people need to go through in this freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw, freeze-thaw cycle until they can get some relief? So we usually we do it during the same procedure, and mm. it actually tends to be pretty quick. We can usually do this in under half an, half an hour. And if we're really concerned that the tumor or the cancer may grow back quickly and cause a similar type of uh, problem in the near future, we have other technology and techniques that we can use, such as putting in stents in the airway, uh, airway stents to, to keep it open. So we typically just do either one of these heat or uh, uh, cold therapies. Uh, and then if we're concerned, uh, we may uh, put an airway stent in to, to keep it open afterwards. And how do you decide whether you're going to go hot or cold? I mean, they both sound like they get rid of the tumor, both sound like they open up the airway, both sound like they are 
relatively safe, simple procedures uh, that can be done uh, by an interventional pulmonologist. How do you decide on this patient I'm going to use heat and on this patient I'm going to use cold? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, There are safe procedures in experienced hands. So with the right person doing the right procedure, it it is safe. Some of our decision-making is is actually dependent on where uh, the tumor is. So sometimes uh, we can reach areas better with one technique than, than we can with the others. Sometimes, and we're investigating this, uh, some tumors appear to respond better to the cold than, than the heat. And so it depends on the type of tumor, where it is, what else is nearby, as you mentioned, uh, the blood vessels, et cetera. And so there's a lot of planning that we do ahead of time to choose the choose the right thing. Although most of the time these days we use the heat methods uh, to to facilitate this. So, and just thinking about this, so you're you're either burning this tumor or you're freezing this tumor. But either way, the tumor is still kind of there, although it may have died. But you never know for a hundred percent certain that every single cancer cell died. So how do you decide when you're going to use one of these hot-cold methods to get rid of the obstruction versus surgery to kind of just remove it? Is it possible to remove these tumors that are invading an airway? It is, and a lot of that will depend on what stage uh, the tumor is in. So if it is an earlier stage and surgery is an option, that would be the preferred approach because then... They can get rid of all the all the cancer cells. Sometimes the cancer's too advanced, and or the person may be too sick to undergo a surgery. In which case, we're really trying to uh, what we call palliate, but really focus on relieving the symptoms of that tumor. So not necessarily uh, completely curing it, but really allowing the person to breathe better get back as close to as close to their normal self uh, as possible in terms of what they're able to do. So surgery is an option for some. This approach is an option for others. Usually when we're doing that approach, we're also thinking about uh, what um, the patient is going to do in terms of perhaps receiving chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And so we work very closely with our colleagues in oncology. And and tell me more about that interplay in terms of chemotherapy and radiation and, and how that works in the setting of these interventional pulmonary procedures. So during the procedure, it's usually the interventional pulmonologist who's doing it. But before the procedure, uh, we will have talked to either the surgeon or the Uh, medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, uh, so that everybody's more or less on the same page and we know that we're doing everything possible uh, to treat the patient both during the procedure, before the procedure, and then after the procedure. So kind of the sequencing of things, right? Like do you do chemo first and then do this ablation and then do radiation afterwards or or in a different order or in a different mix? Yeah, it can vary depending on how much or how symptomatic the patient is, what type of cancer it is, and, and what all the therapeutic options are. And so having that team uh, to work with is really important. 
In terms of the stents that you were talking about, I can think that that would be really helpful just in terms of holding that airway open. Because when you obstruct, man, I can just imagine what it feels like not to be able to breathe. Um, and having, you know, if you can't, if you can't get rid of the cancer completely, just getting rid of as much as you can and having something that's going to hold that airway open so that you can breathe would be such a tremendous relief. But what does that feel like for the patient? I mean, does it feel like you have something in your airway? And then my second question is, can that obstruct too? Yeah, so these are these are great questions. A lot of times, um, uh, the patients just get used to it. So at first, they may feel like they have something in their airway and may cough a bit. But being able to breathe again is is Huge. such a better feeling yeah. that um, the cough may seem more of a nuisance than anything else. Um, we can. Uh, at times, be concerned that the stent may re-obstruct. Uh, we use different things to, to help keep them open. Um, so we use what's called nebulizer, nebulizer machines, to give medicines that go directly into the lungs that help uh, prevent uh, mucus, for example, from plugging it up or clogging it up. And, uh, and there are other techniques we can use. Does the cancer ever regrow into the stent? It can. If it does, then we can also go back to what we did before in terms of the fire and ice therapy and perhaps uh, treat it that way or, if needed, use a longer uh, type of stent in those scenarios. Dr. Jonathan Pachalski is an associate professor of internal medicine in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.